and welcome to another episode of From No Crypto to No Crypto. It's the Crypto Coach, Blockchain Wayne, with another cryptocurrency podcast. Today's episode brought to us by Blockchain Training Academy, helping to take cryptocurrency and blockchain education to the masses. In this episode, I did an exciting interview with someone called Principal Z. Now, let's listen into this interview to see what Principal Z has to say about blockchain, cryptocurrency, and how it relates to the transformation of education. Today we are joined by Nadav Zimmer. Now he goes by Principal Z. Principal Z has over 18 years of experience in the public education system and is also experienced in one of the poorest school districts in the country and looking to utilize uh, blockchain technology and the digital economy to revolutionize education. So Principal Z, thanks for joining us today. Appreciate Coach you. Ryan, thanks for having me. Awesome. Awesome. Well, man, let's start with... Um, you know, first and foremost, I mean, I see you're doing a lot of work uh, between technology, merging technology and, and uh, education. Um, you've got a book, right, that's been uh, released. How, how long yep. has that book been out? Uh, came out May 1st. May 1st. All right. Can you tell us it's uh, education in the digital age? Is that correct? Yep. Education in oh. the digital age, how we get there. Cool. Tell us a little bit about uh, about the book. What is uh, what, are, what are the main principles of it? So the book is kind of a, um, a study in digital economics and the inversion that's happening throughout the economy. And I make a case that the next big use case for blockchain will actually be uh, an unbundling in education. Uh, so the book goes into a lot of what uh, historically has been going on and what inversion looks like. You know, this move from big corporations to startups, from individual to crowd, from scarcity to abundance, local to global, physical to digital, right? Um, and it goes into depth in a specific concept of the difference between having a job, which is an industrial context that is gone, to actually having to do work as an independent contractor or um, you know, work from home as part of a company, doing work and the quality of your work matters more than just punching in and having a job. And so that transition from the industrial economy to the digital economy is what I think about as a principle when I think about how I'm gonna prepare my students for the future. Wow, yeah, that's some great stuff. You know, I talk so much about education around those spaces and and, Never really heard it tied together like that. So it really makes sense. The, you know, the world that education is preparing people for right now no longer really exists, right? That with the current education standards. Right. And and increasingly, you know, we talk about very recently losing trust in our police. And I know you talked about that recently in the in your trust in an episode about mm -hmm. trust. Um, we have a similar issue with our high schools, right? We've long lost trust in a high school credit. A high school credit you can get all your high school credits and not know how to read, right? So yeah. colleges took care of that with standardized tests, the AP, the SAT, the college entrance essays, right? They, they've lost trust in the transcript a long time ago. And so now for the first time with digital technology, with everybody having a smartphone, we have the opportunity to do that inversion that's happened in media, that's happened in finance, that's happened in a lot of areas in education. So that means going from a push model of education to a pull model of education, going from students being consumers to students being creators of content. Awesome, awesome, yeah, that, that's amazing. Um, so one of the one of the topics that I wanted to discuss with you is uh, the implications of the emergent digital economy in our public schools. So explain kind of some of those implications with you know the emergent uh, the emergence of a digital economy. Yeah. I think we see it really clearly these days with COVID. And I think COVID is bringing it to a crisis. You know, 
the book and uh, the open source project that I'm launching called DNA Credits was kind of a side project I did on weekends and evenings. But with COVID, it's, um, I'm accelerating and I find a lot more interest and I've got a lot more kind of fire behind me to get this happening. Because if you look at the forces that are gonna hit schools in September, we have social distancing, right? In New York City, they're estimating about nine kids per classroom. At the same time, budgets are being cut. At the same time, private schools are losing funding for scholarships and people are falling out of the upper middle class. So increased enrollment. So you have increased enrollment, social distancing, at the same time that you have less budgets. So our high schools are gonna collapse if we don't do something to help. And so what I'm saying is, why can't a kid who enjoyed working from home, they're not the majority, but some kids did better at home. Let them stay home. Some teachers did better at home. Let them work with those kids, right? And it goes well beyond that. Why aren't kids at protests covering the protests like reporters with the teachers being fact checkers rather than having to be stuck in a classroom. I mean, our, our schools are more and more like prisons in a way. I, I hesitate to say that, but you know, we have guards, we have bells that tell you when to go. And if you walk out of the room and you're not supposed to, it's for high school, you know, I'm not talking about elementary or middle, for high school education, this is no longer appropriate. When we want a pull model where students are researching what they're interested in, using standards, research, writing, um, all the same skills, but in something they're interested in to tell the story that's important to them, and we need to hear our students' voices in the media. All the big revolutions in the world, historically, not all, but a vast majority came from young people um, at the, you know, in that high school range. It's a really important time in life and we need to give those students a voice. And by giving them a voice, they'll get engaged in the content. And what I'm really, what's really important to me is giving everybody access. Right now to get a good quality credit, you need to go to a good school, which means you went to a good middle school and elementary school. Why can't we offer a credit that anybody can get access to if they do that level of work? Wow. Yeah, that's, man, that's some deep thought. I never thought about uh, the education system like that. And you really put into perspective, especially with the fall, you know, the schools being overburdened come the fall. And uh, yeah, that, that, that really makes, uh, makes a lot of sense, really makes you stop and think. Um, yeah. So how do you think decentralization and open source, you mentioned DNA credits and all having ex access to, how do you think decentralization is going to impact that space? You know, I grew up in Chicago, and I don't know if this is true. I've never been able to verify it uh, with historical records, but I've looked. Um, there is a story that the Chicago public schools were built. The loop, Chicago has this area called the Loop, which is where all the skyscrapers are, all the gorgeous architecture is. And um, there, supposedly, the city was designed that that Loop area, the downtown area, all the real estate went to education. Right. So 200 years ago, they understood that at the foundation of our economy is education. If we can acknowledge especially high school ed education, acknowledge that educating our young people as they enter the workforce benefits us all, right? If we can acknowledge that, then we can start thinking about how do we actually build education into the foundational levels of our um, economy? And so what the opportunity that I see is digital cash has not yet come into existence, right? Facebook has tried with Libra, a bunch of you know different efforts have tried. There might become a digital dollar. I know China's trying really hard, but there's no global cash. There's global gold, that's Bitcoin, but there's no global cash. I'm not going to be able to say that for many more months, right? And so in this time, while we're designing digital cash, why I'm on this podcast, why I'm trying to get my voice out there is what I'm saying to the designers, to the engineers, consider designing digital cash to fund education. Here's how it would work. It's very simple. 
you have, and, and I'm going to, there's a piece about race and bias that I can put aside for a second. That's really important. I, and it's a different conversation we should go into, mm -hmm. but the idea is that you design a digital cash system. I believe it should involve Bitcoin, but again, that's going a little bit into the weeds, but you design a digital cash system where the way you inject more money into the economy, the way you cause inflate, you know, when you need to print more cash is through the wallets of young people who have proven themselves to have work ethic, right? As a basic income. So what happens is you earn these gold standard high school credits and the students that earn the most of them would become eligible for a basic income for 25 years after that. And that's how new cash would get injected into the economy. So we're creating a currency that would do that. But what I, I doesn't need to be my currency. I don't, you know, I, this, I have a day job. This is not how I make money, right? I have, I make enough money as a principal. What I'm interested in doing is getting to the people that are thinking about how to design digital cash and say, instead of going through, you know, 60 cents on the dollar, I believe, goes to the military industrial complex right now. That's, and the government just needs to inject money into the economy. So they look for the biggest contracts. It's the easiest way to do it. But with a digital economy, it's very easy to fund the grassroots individual people through digital wallets. So why aren't we giving a basic income only to the people who have proven themselves to have work ethic, proven themselves to be able to produce videos, podcasts, code, Right, the students that know the digital economy that can teach us about it, that can lead the way there, are the ones that should be getting incentivized to innovate and to be creative, and that's going to help us bridge this gap. Because you know, right now, a truck driver can't use an app to make a living. One day, they might be able to outperform the big truck companies with an app. We need to bridge that gap, and we need to do it damn fast because people are falling out of the dying industrial economy into the growing digital economy, and that gap. You know, this happened from agrarian to the industrial. But at that time, things didn't happen so quickly. We weren't globally communicating. Right now we have an opportunity to do it without the bloodshed and without the pain. And I think that that involves designing cash in a way that incentivizes the next generation to step up and step up fast. Wow, yeah. So yeah, when you think about it, that's, I mean, that, that's a great concept there, which you mentioned, um, because when you think about right now, so the Fed has been printing trillions of dollars, right? And outside of a stimulus payment that that, you know, most Americans got, not all. But outside of that, people don't realize where is all that money going? It's it's being pumped into markets, into financial institutions, propping it up when it should be. If it's going to be true stimulus spending, it should continue to go to those that deserve it the most. To everybody. That's how you stimulate the economy. You get people that need money put in their hands and they'll spend it. Give it to the rich people, they're not going to spend it. Now, that model isn't false. The, the model of that trickle-down model, for an industrial economy, when you needed somebody with a lot of money to come build a factory, that made sense. The push model made sense to push the money from the top down. But we flipped. And now the big companies on the planet are giving stuff away for free as platforms. And I think it's really important to talk about what a platform is because we're going to shift from corporations to platforms. I'm not saying corporations are going to go away. I'm not saying governments are going to go away, but there's going to, there's, we're in equilibrium right now where the corporations had too much power. Now we have Facebook and Google and we have these platforms that are gaining power. They're actually the most, you know, the biggest companies in the world and they're no longer going to be bound by borders, right? So the next superpower on the planet is not going to be a country. It's going to be Facebook, you know, it's going to be a company and it's going to be a company that has its own digital cash. That's going to be the biggest market player is not going to be a corporation. It's going to be a platform. And so we need to start understanding what how do these plat how do these platforms make money if they're giving stuff away for free, right? And that's really the hallmark of a platform. And it's part of what interests me about Bitcoin in particular, because Bitcoin right now is a network. And so part of what I'm saying with this digital cash is let's make Bitcoin a platform. 
What does that mean? We we design Bitcoin so that the miners have to manage a very light digital cash system, right? That's free, global, instant. And in exchange for for creating that, that's you know that's how these free platforms work. They give away something for free on one side to get adoption, then they get the fees on the other side. So you give away a free digital cash on the front end. Everybody adopts a digital cash. Everyone would adopt a digital cash if it was, wasn't controlled by a government or a corporation, right? If it was just for the workers, by the workers. So that's what Bitcoin could create. Bitcoin creates a free digital cash system, gives it away for free, manages the infrastructure, you know, so it's going to cost something. But in exchange for giving up a few minutes of mining time, you know, every day or every month, whatever it comes out to, they then have a platform which the network effects move much faster. And all those people that are using the digital cash have to settle on Bitcoin. So the miners get a massive increase in fees. And I think we would have Bitcoin in the hundreds of thousands of dollars in the next 10 or 15 years if Bitcoin became the digital cash issuer. Right now, digital gold is very different than digital cash. We want gold to be slow and expensive. That's yeah. It's safe, it's slow, it's expensive, it's good. Digital cash, we want it to be instant, ownerless, free, global, right? And, and Bitcoin is the only decentralized community that is poised to do that. And they work very slowly, but I'm trying to raise my voice and say, guys, shift from being a network to being a platform, right? WhatsApp sold for 20 billion. Uber sold for 68 billion. WhatsApp had 40 times more users, right? But Uber was a platform. It had two sides. And a platform, by the way, I should have said this in the front end, all a platform is, is more than one network connected together with some kind of search bar, right? That's all a platform is. So taking Bitcoin from a network and adding another network to it and binding them together creates a platform and platforms are much harder to fight with and they make a lot more money. Yeah. So basically creating the end users on either side that are looking for each other. Right. Yeah. yeah. And then Bitcoin becomes how the stores settle their accounts at night. Right. So they just run one transaction a day or, or a week or however they do it. Right. So we wouldn't be transaction on Bitcoin. It would be for multi-million dollar, multi-thousand dollar transactions that would be worth paying three bucks for a transaction, right? So you settle on Bitcoin at the end of the night when you close out your register at the end of the week, but the cash, and actually the cash can be something that doesn't even have to, you can be offline. If you want to give your kids their allowance and your internet doesn't work, you can actually do that phone to phone. The network would just have to certify your wallet when you opened it and you can keep your wallet open. Whenever you close your wallet, the, the, the Bitcoin miners would have to do a little work to verify, but you could have your own local chain. Again, we're getting to the weeds here a little bit, but it's very yeah. possible. Um, in the next few years for Bitcoin to do this. Um, and I and I think they could do good for education and they can make a ton of money. And I think that combination is important because incentives are what can tell you where we're going, right? Right now, the incentives in education are for each governor and each city mayor to water down the standards, just like they print more money. They print more standards because they want to show the graduation rates going up. Mm -hmm. So they're incentivized to screw education. If we can design incentives that flip that, and that's part of why I'm so against standardized testing, if we can flip that and make it about the quality of student work, just what's going to be expected of them in the workplace. How good is your work? That's all we should be looking at in our schools, quality student work. And I am, I'm a data person. I have a degree in physics and I was known and I am known as a principal for being data driven, very heavily data driven. But so I'm not saying we need to get rid of data. No, no, no. We need data. Taxpayers need to know which schools are good and which schools suck because they're paying for them. So it's critical that we have good data. But that data right now is testing data. Even the AP or IB, those are still tests. And tests just test how good you are at being a robot, right? Mm -hmm. Select A, B, C, or D, write the, write the essay in this format, whatever it is. 
we're, we're not even the people that do well in a test aren't the ones that are going to do well in life. That's not a good predictor. And so if all we said is let's flip that and say, upload a piece of digital content. And instead of standards, we have something called gates. Somebody, you know, the college board can set up an AP gate and say AP physics gate. You have to upload, you know, you know, the um, Khan Academy. Have you heard of them? No, I haven't. So Khan Academy is this very popular website where there are videos that will teach you about different subjects, any subject in school. So a lot of teachers use that and say, okay, go watch the video instead of having me teach you. Go home and watch the video. And then in class, we'll do the work together. It's called flipping the classroom, right? Makes sense. Mm -hmm. Imagine Khan Academy where all the content is students teaching other students, right? And so students producing that high quality content is what replaces the standardized exams. And you only get a credit or zero credit. If a kid goes way above and beyond, they still only get a credit or a zero credit, one and zero. I, in my physics degree, um, I studied electronics a lot before I went to software engineering. And then I worked at Netscape and whatever else, uh, worked for digital equipment at Netscape. But there's this concept of a digital gate, what makes all of digital economy run. And digital gate takes this noisy electrical signal that's in your electrical outlet and says anything over five volts is one, anything below five volts is zero, right? And that's a gate, it's called a gate. And that's the same thing we're doing here is there's all this noise, there's gonna be all different levels of quality, all sorts of complications. Let's make it real simple. Above this level is a one, below this level is a zero. That's the only data I'm collecting, but it's amazing from that data because it's videos, now a student transcript, you can click on the transcript or, or scan a QR code and see the video that was that made that credit. You can see how good the work is, right? And so it, it, it starts having us focus on doing work rather than having a job and having students learn that quality work is what matters and having students explore what's important and interesting to them. Nice. Wow, man. I, I tell you, we need thought leaders uh, like you. And and I tell people all the time, not all of us can code, right? Right. Uh, not everybody can code. Not everybody can build those elaborate systems. But you also, even some of those coders don't have, um, you know, maybe may not have the ability to think of all these different aspects that they need to implement. So it's important to have you know, thought leaders like yourself that's able to get that message out to people to where we can find people that will code. And what's good about this is, you know, with, with the, the economy around uh, Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies, there's coders that are always looking to work on open source projects and, and commit, you know, especially like on GitHub and stuff to be able to impact these projects that need to be built, you know, emerging yep. ideas with the people that can help build the infrastructure. I, yeah, I can do highways, right. but I may not be able to lay the, the asphalt, but other people can lay the asphalt. Right. And coding is the one job. It's the best, you know, it's replaced doctors and lawyers. And if you want a safe job for the future, lawyers are going to get replaced by coders with smart contracts, right? So yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's a really important place to look. You know, your audience, I, I assume, is interested or getting interested in Bitcoin um, and blockchain. One of the things that's fun about this project is it's a little bit different as a blockchain. This is a blockchain that's super slow. There's one block every three months. Okay. One block every three months, right? Really strange. And so what happens is every three months, there's a block that's formed. And that's just a bundle of student work that gets bundled up and says, boom, this is a block. And then those people get the basic income guarantee. When you bundle up that block, what the system does is check to see if that block is as diverse as the local community that's created it. You can't get onto the block if you don't represent diversity. Now, why is that? Diversity, you can't call schools you can't say you're doing critical thinking in a classroom if you don't have different viewpoints in the classroom. If you have groupthink, how do you call it critical thinking, right? Yeah. And so in this economy, in this day and age, just like the your stock portfolio manager tells you to diversify, diversity 
is going to be what trains our young people to work in a global village because they need to understand different types of people and different cultures. I don't believe in the melting pot. I think we should all be separate and be different and have our cultures and proud of them and laugh at each other and teach each other, right? That having our own cultures is what's important, not get rid of, getting rid of our cultures. So we need to have schools, even if each school building isn't diverse, we need to have the level of work being done, not just be rich white kids that are doing the work, right? And so the blockchain requires diversity. So here in New York, you can't just have Tribeca producing the work. They won't get the basic income. They need to go get Brooklyn and you know Bronx. They need to get at least a credit generate in each one of these areas. And then that one credit, that person that gets that one credit in whatever area would get the basic income much more easily. Not that the standard would be lowered, but they would just need one credit. But in a very competitive neighborhood, you might need to get 30 credits to get the basic income, right? So this, it's a very interesting, different kind of blockchain that's very slow, but when it bundles up this package every three months, it also has this anti-bias component to it. Because for me, bias isn't bad. Bias is me caring for my family more than people that aren't in my family, right? We are biased. That's what helped us survive. That's what created tribes. And tribes are what the digital economy is about, right? You want to build a tribe. So I'm saying that we're just, we are biased. I am going to be biased. People look like me. Let's acknowledge that. And let's just design the incentives so that I have to get over that in high school and meet people that are different than me and help them because that's really where deep education happens. And it is hard, but so is calculus. So we can do it. Yeah, man. I, I tell you, I've uh, in the corporate setting I've, I've taught diversity and inclusion for the last 15 years and it's I, I say the same thing all the time you cannot get good results or good outcomes or you won't get the best outcomes unless you have diversity within the ranks of all aspects you know because everybody's experiences um, lead to their thought process and when you put that you know, put that together you can create powerful outcomes versus having a room where everybody thinks alike and there's not a whole lot of innovation that happens there. Right. So when people talk about anti-fragile, right, our economy was fragile. And that's why we got hit hard by this corona. Mm -hmm. Being anti-fragile now is anti-biased. If you have a system that includes everybody, you are not as fragile because people can't be controlled and organized into these clear pockets that I'll manipulate all these people with this marketing strategy. No, if we're all a little complicated and I have somebody, you know, my alma mater, whatever, all of my different identities are cross-cutting then it's very hard to have centralized control. And what you were talking about, that decentralization, open source projects have been the solution to the most complicated types of software, right? Operating systems on servers with Linux. That's because you can't ever get that amount of diverse thinking and new ideas within a company because your hiring managers wouldn't be as good. And somebody might just participate for 30 seconds, but make all the difference, right? So that yeah. diversity and complexity um, you know, the military has something they call VUCA, volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous situations. We are not educating our kids for VUCA with standardized tests. And what I'm saying is let's let them get into more complicated things where they can take a position and do some research and back it up. But there's no right answer. When in life are there simple right ABCD answers? It just doesn't exist. I always tell my students there are no dumb answers, no, no dumb questions, except for on standardized tests. <laughs> yeah. All those questions are dumb, right? Absolutely. So um, there's a question I had set aside that I, I want to ask here because it kind of caught my interest. Um, in, in, in the info that was, that was sent to me, it says, one of the questions is how academic capital can use greed to our advantage yep. during this period of economic inversion. I know we may have touched on it here or there, but can you give me a little insight into that? 
Yeah. So, you know, there's social part of what's happening with the digital economy is new forms of capital are forming. Um, and anybody that says, let me just take a little diversion here. Anybody that says it's hard to transform education, it is. Anybody, you know, education has stayed the same more than anything else. But look at money, right? In 2017, people invented their own money and sold it for billions of dollars. So if we can have our own money being invented, we can definitely have our own credits being invented in high school. And so what I'm talking about is just unbundling high school credits, just that one piece. Where do we store a high school credit? And what I'm saying is let's take it away from the governments and put it in the hands of a community of educators who can think long-term and not be focused on elections and then create those credits in that transfer. Okay, so that's just background. Now, what does greed have to do with it? Um, I think it's really important that um, that greed, if, if you don't have greed on your side of your initiative, if people being greedy is going to work against what you're doing, you're never going to get anywhere. It's got to work. So the basic income is part of that, right? Mm -hmm. Incentives for teachers to do the grading is part of that. Um, but then beyond that, for the economy as a whole, I think like Bitcoin, I think Bitcoin should do this not because they should have good hearts. I think they're going to make a ton of money if they become a platform and, you know, create digital cash. Um, and this decentralization, I think people are realizing this inverted thinking is where the money is. And so we need to think about how do we switch from the industrial mindset to digital mindset to make money and to be comfortable economically. And it's a transition. It's so much easier to look for a familiar past than an unfamiliar future. But we gotta, we gotta dive in, we gotta go there. And so what I'm saying is let's make a case why investing in education and why doing it in a way that's ownerless without corporations or governments involved um, is gonna make us the most money as a culture. And I bet you the, the localities, the cities, the towns, the, the districts that shift from standardized tests to having students doing podcasts and videos, I guarantee you those populations, those cities will thrive and they'll have innovation and they'll have money flowing through them in ways that wasn't seen before. And so I'm just saying that I'm not against, I'm not against greed, right? I'm for greed. I think we have to use greed. We have to plan for people to game the system and think about how would they game. You know, we have to do that work. Otherwise, it doesn't make sense. But in a, in a digital context, in the industrial context, it was zero sum. You have it and then I don't. Oil. Mm -hmm you know, resources, mother nature. But in a world where attention is the resource that's being commodified, right? Human attention is how we're making money and ideas are what are being passed around in a digitally abstracted way. More people having them gets you more money, not less, right? So it's a positive sum dynamic. So what I'm saying is this collaborative rather than coercive style of education isn't pie in the sky, happy dappy stuff. It's actually what's going to make us money and it's going to prepare us for the future and it's going to transition us to a digital economy. And school doesn't just have to be about helping people make money and whatever else, but where I come from, that's got to be the first thing it does, right? And then yeah. it has to give students deep experience. And I think this happens as a byproduct does that too. Yeah, you know, one byproduct I thought about while you were talking, you mentioned earlier about um, instead of having students sitting in classrooms, having them out at the protests, being like news reporters and you know, I, th I think our, our mainstream media is another sector that needs an overhaul where live stream video now is more reliable than your daily news. Yep. You know, so, so imagine so imagine high school students producing content that teachers are vetting. Teachers are fact checking. We don't mm -hmm. have that level of fact checking in our media right now. No. Right. And here we'd have teachers and that's that would be their job. They wouldn't have to design the lessons anymore. It's crazy. We ask them to design it and to and to deliver it. 
they would be working with students on mastering their attention, mindfulness, whatever it takes to master your attention, to do quality work and have work ethic. Work ethic is a function of your attention. And on the flip side, students need to understand how they're, how screens are sucking our attention, right, to make money. A digital native student is not one that stares at a screen all the time. A digital native student is one that's out in the world shooting video, making money, producing content rather than consuming content. They realize that they need to use their attention to send a message, to be a brand, you know, um, you know, to not be a businessman, but be a businessman, right? That's from um, who who said that? Jay Z. Yeah. Right. And so I think that the digital native is not more screenification of everything. It's actually less. It's getting out of the real world. And then the teacher's role really hones in on frustration tolerance. How do you deal with me saying no? Do another version. No, go again. Right. You have to do those revisions if you're going to get high quality stuff. And so mm -hmm. the teacher works with the human being on frustration on mindfulness, on whatever it takes. They don't have to design the lessons. They can search and find a gate that they want to do with their students. And the students don't have to be locked in a building. So the resources that we're dealing with in September, as the, all these three forces collide, students can be out you know, reporting. And and the we, we get into a little bit of detail with math and things like that. And I can talk about that. I was a former math teacher, so I, that's really important to me. But it's a little harder in math. But it's kind of that Khan Academy thing. If you can teach others the concept, you learn the concept. And you know from doing a podcast, you learn more about crypto doing a podcast, right, than anything yeah. else. You make kids do podcasts about topics, they will learn. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Principal Z, man, you've really shared a lot of knowledge with us. Uh, got my wheels turning myself. And one thing I want to start with uh, next as we start to wrap up is uh, for myself personally and for the people listening or watching this video, uh, where can we start with where can we get your book and where can we see some of your other content? My book should be available anywhere. I'd love if you ask your library to get it. That means more to me than you buying it on Amazon. Uh, education in the digital age, how we get there. Um, principalz.org if you want some um, some stuff from me and get my mailing list. But uh, on the socials, uh, hashtag DNA credits. Um, and I'd love, yeah, be in touch. Let me know. Um, this is a huge, this is much bigger than me. And I'm not gonna be able to do this alone. So I need all y'all to help out, even if it's just following me on Twitter so that I get more followers, so I get a little bigger voice to, to push against the forces that be, because there are people that do not want to see this happen for, you know, for their own personal interest. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, man, you, you shared a lot of knowledge with us. I'm definitely going to pick up a copy of your book. I'm going to buy one on Amazon and talk to the library about getting it. I'll do both. Thank you. But um, any, any final thoughts uh, before we go? Um, just for your kid, you know, if you're a parent listening to this, um, I think it's just start to think about the digital literacy, video, um, podcasting or audio, uh, social media campaigns, like engage students where they're at and have and be looking at whether your young person is consuming or creating. Um, and I think it's a really important thing to start looking at. Wow. And with four kids myself, I'm actually, those wheels are turning in my head as well. I'm like, you know, We've talked about it. In fact, I've got a I've got a new green screen coming in. I plan on giving this one to uh, my stepson because he wants to start creating content and having a cool background. So, uh, man, that that just that just opens up a whole new can of worms. And yeah, I mean, especially if kids. One thing I saw when this lockdown happened initially was uh, webcams were sold out. Um, web my you know microphones and stuff were sold out. So if they're buying all this all this um, hardware for school let's let's teach them to utilize it for what you're talking about as well not just to consume content or to to do a daily class right create so, right yeah zoom meetings are not quality education having yeah. the kid go out there and tell a story or stay home and do a journal that's 
that's much more meaningful or teach each other. That's much more meaningful than the zoom meeting. Awesome. Awesome. Principal Z. Hey, thanks again for joining us today. Um, it's been a pleasure. Uh, hopefully we'll get you on, on, on another, uh, on a follow-up. I definitely want to follow your project, see what happens as it goes, um, and, and help spread the word. So, uh, thanks principal Z and, um, thank everybody for listening and, uh, we will catch you on the next episode. Thanks coach.